The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Frank Griffith in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Luke 15. I want to read this chapter. This is what we're going to be looking at. And the question is, for whom did Jesus come? And that is answered for us here in this passage. Listen to this. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And every Christian should say, Amen. That's the truth. Jesus receives sinners and he eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven when one sinner over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, notice in the same way, just like he said in verse 7, in the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels, that is, in God's presence in heaven, over one sinner who repents. And he said, a man who had two sons, the younger of them, said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls on me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the young son gathered everything together and went on his journey into the distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. They wouldn't even let him have the pods. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. This is what he's thinking he's going to say to his father. So he got up and he came to the father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. And in your sight, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and he has come to life again. He was lost and he has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. When he came and approached the house, he heard the music and the dancing. 
And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, the servant says to him, your brother has come and your father has killed a fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry, was not willing to go in, and his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to the father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with promises, you killed a fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you've always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours who was dead and has begun to live and who was lost and has been found. Now, I don't know if you notice it, but this verse here in 32 has all the elements of Ephesians 2.1 when it talks about our lost estate. We were dead and lost, and God gave us life, and he brought us home. In this passage, uh, Jesus tells us for whom he came, and that is he came for the lost. Uh, In fact, Luke 19 says this, Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Hallelujah. I'm I'm so glad that he's doing this. That he came to seek and save that which was lost. Because sometimes you get the feeling like it's your job, don't you? And you can get so frustrated because you find it so impossible. Especially with particular people. And yet what we're told here is that Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. Now all of this comes from something in the very first two verses. The reason Jesus gives these parables is he wants to explain a truth to those people who are following him and are listening to him, and to hide it from those who are following him but are not listening to him. This is sometimes referred to technically as a sitzen leben, which is just a German term for the situation in life. What is it that precipitated these parables? Why did Jesus go down this path? Well, it was because as he was walking along, and they're traveling towards Jerusalem, remember, that a bunch of sinners and tax gatherers, you know what tax gatherers are, and uh, they were looked down upon because they were agents of the Roman government. And so they saw them as sinners. So these Pharisees and scribes say, look at him. He receives sinners and he eats with them. Isn't that amazing? And of course, what you have here is you have the enemy preaching the gospel. That is the gospel. Jesus receives sinners. Aren't you glad? I am so glad of that, that he receives sinners like me. That's who he welcomes, and that's what the Pharisees and the scribes did not get. Because they didn't like Jesus as the Messiah. He wasn't the right person to fulfill all their expectations. What they wanted was somebody who was strong and powerful and would deliver Israel from the heel of Rome. And instead, Jesus came to manifest the mighty power of God by dying on a cross. This is one of the craziest things in the Bible. It says that the greatest display of the power of God was the cross of Jesus Christ. Think about that. Here's a man hanging on a tree who has been beaten and and spit upon and now he's hanging on a tree and that's the demonstration of the power of God 
And that's why Paul says the weakness of God is stronger than man. It looks like weakness to us, Jesus hanging on the cross, and it looked like weakness to these Pharisees and scribes that Jesus was welcoming sinners to walk along with him and to listen to him. He actually was teaching them as they were walking along. And the Pharisees and the scribes didn't like this at all. And so Jesus tells these parables. Now, why the parables? Well, we saw in Matthew 13, 13 and other places that Jesus used parables in order to explain the truth, clarify truth to those who had ears to hear. Now, that's an expression that's used of those whose hearts have been changed and they know that Jesus is the Christ. And so they listen to him as he really is. And they hear what he's saying. And so these parables, first of all, was to clarify truth and to illustrate it with a story. But it was to hide the truth to those who had no ears to hear and eyes to see. They had no faith. They had no desire uh, to submit to this one who was, had, had come as the Messiah. So he's going he's to address their sinful ignorance with these three parables. And the reason is because he's going to illustrate it and make it plain. And so we have these three parables that follow. The first parable is found in verses 3 through 7. The first, three par- the first parable is a parable of the lost sheep. Now, uh, uh, typically a, a flock of sheep, or herd of, you call them a flock? Or this? Yes, a flock of sheep. <laughs> sounds like birds, doesn't it? There was always about 100. That was the typical size. And so when he gives this illustration, he's just talking about reality. And so he gives this illustration, this parable of the lost sheep. And the, and, but if you'll notice, all three of these parables are about something that's lost and has been found. And what you need to keep in mind is in every case when it is found, there is great joy with those who have found it. And Jesus is illustrating the fact that the heart of God experiences great joy when Jesus finds a lost person and brings them to God. So this first parable here of the lost sheep, he says if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what does he do? Well, he goes after the lost one, right? Now, shepherds always worked as teams, and so it didn't mean that he left them alone without any tending. They had to have someone there to watch over them. But he's a primary shepherd, and so he goes and looks for the lost sheep. And when he finds it, he brings it back. And the way he would bring it back is put it on his shoulders and carry it back. Two things are striking in this first parable, which is verses 3 through 7. First is, it's an obvious analogy of the search for the sheep that Jesus is seeking. That he takes the initiative in seeking out lost people. This is a major theme in the book of Luke. That Jesus goes after the lost now, I don't think any of us like to consider ourselves lost, but that's exactly what we were. And that's exactly why he came after us, to save us. And guess what happened? He rejoiced, and heaven rejoiced when he found you. Isn't that amazing? That this was a joyous thing. I kind of get convicted about the fact that I don't have enough joy. I don't know if you do. I try to make you feel guilty about that, but I just can't get over how joyless the Christian life can be at times. At least we can act joyless. And a joyless Christian is an abnormal thing, you know. But I'm so glad that the important thing is that Jesus is not joyless. 
that he has great joy because he found you. And he brought you into the family of God. He brought you to the Lord. And so he rejoices. In fact, at the end of the little book of Jude, it says that when he, when he presents us to the Father on the last day, he's going to present us with joy. And he's, in fact, it's a picture of him singing, joyfully singing as he presents you to the Father. Isn't that amazing? I mean, think of that. You're, what you're thinking is there's going to be a billion people, and Jesus is going to say, here's all the people I've saved. But Jude says he's going to present you to the Father, and he's going to rejoice over the fact that he found you and brought you into the family of God. Sometimes Jesus is a lot more joyful than you are, and I am about this. I'm so glad that he has great joy in the fact that he saved us. Have you ever felt like God may be sorry that he saved you? Have you ever felt like that? Like, wow, he got a raw deal here. <laughs> he rejoices. The other thing is, is not just the return of the sheep, but the triumph of rejoicing and it's the, in the rescue of the sheep. Jesus is seeking and receiving sinners, and it pleases God that he does it. But the way the Bible puts it, and this is kind of hard for some people to take, but this is exactly how the Bible puts it. It says that God set his love upon you in eternity past, and then he sent his son into the world to die for you, to seek you out and to die for you and to bring you to himself. In other words, this is a plan from eternity past. Ephesians chapter 1 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And then he begins to enumerate those blessings. He says, Just as he chose you in Christ before the foundation of the world to become holy and blameless. And even planned the way he's going to bring you into the family as a son of God. God rejoices that you've been saved. Sometimes this doesn't make me feel any better about my joylessness at times. But when I go before the Father, I'm so glad that I'm talking to a joyful Father who actually is pleased that the Son has brought me into the family of God. And he wants me to be joyful about it as well. The second parable is the parable of the coins. Now, when a, a, this, the word for coin here, drachma, is a more expensive. This, this, this coin is worth much more than a drachma. I mean, a, the coin that is equal to a day's wage. This is a much more expensive coin. This is the kind of coin that would be put in the headdress of a woman when, during her, that during her wedding she would wear. There were ten of them. And she lost one. And so she goes looking for the, the coin. Now, typically in a house that, she, that would, they're talking about, in a little house they were talking about, there would be very little light. Might be a window, door open, but there was a lamp. You could, you could light a lamp. But if you notice, she, she begins to sweep the floor. I've been a few, not, I haven't traveled a lot, but I've been in a few places, in the Philippines and Mexico and a few other places, and what I've noticed about this is this. Everywhere I go, women sweep. I'm serious. I've never gone anywhere where women weren't sweeping. In the Philippines, when I was there the first time, I couldn't get over how these women who lived in little shacks that were dirt floor swept their floor. What is that? Is that genetic? What's the deal? My wife does it all the time. When I make a mess, she sweeps it all up and cleans it up. It's amazing. 
I feel no compulsion to sweep. But this woman begins to sweep the floor in order to find her coin, and she finds it. She needed a lamp because the house had very little light, but she swept until she found it. And Jesus' final comment reinforces the point, in the presence of the angels, that is a reverential expression of God, in the presence of God, they have great joy. Just like the parable of the sheep, it says that God is pleased. Just like this woman was pleased. And then finally, the third parable that you're very familiar with, the parable of the prodigal son. This is the way it would work in the first century. A father, if a father's son came to him and said, I want my inheritance now, if he were to give him his inheritance, the oldest son would get a twice the size of the other child or the other children. If you have ten children, of course, the inheritance is going to be smaller for each one, but he had two sons. So the younger son gets one-third of the value of the father's estate, and he gives it to him. And I know some guys read this and go, what's wrong with this crazy man? Why would he do this? Why would he give this younger son his inheritance? Why doesn't he just say, shut up, sit down, and keep working? He loved his son, and he gives him his inheritance. And he leaves. He goes to another country. And he gets so impoverished that he has to take care of swine. Now, all of us are aware that Jews, for, for Jews, uh, swine were unclean animals, and they would defile them ceremonially. They couldn't go in and participate in, in the worship of the temple. But he's there feeding the swine, and it gets so bad that he doesn't have anything to eat, and he's so hungry he wants to eat the pods that are being given to the swine to eat. But they don't allow it. He's totally impoverished. And finally, finally, he becomes aware of the fact that this is ridiculous. I have a father back home who's not only wealthy but is kind to his servants. I'm just going to go home and ask him for a job. You see, he's been torn, this man. I want you to, oh, this will be fun. Turn back to Hosea. Hosea chapter 6. Hosea is right after Daniel. Hosea chapter 6. And listen to these first three verses. Now what Hosea is talking about, God is speaking through Hosea to the nation because they have been unfaithful to God. And here's what God says to them. Come, let us return to the Lord. That is Hosea speaking for the Lord. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us. That's a very strong term. It's a term that you could use of Jesus' uh, crucifixion. He has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. So let us know. In other words, they're living like they didn't know. They're living like they're totally ignorant of this God. And they need to be revived. And so he, he says, let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. See, sometimes God's people, and we see this especially in the Old Testament, uh, and we also see it in our own lives, that we go for a while and we discover that we really don't know the Lord. We really don't know him like we ought to know him. 
And so Hosea says, so let us know the Lord. Let us press on, press in. That's, it's, that's kind of a military term, like a pressing a battle. A, a, a general would take his army and he would just keep pursuing the enemy. And so he says, press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn, and he will come to, to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. He goes on to use this analogy of a drought. They say we're going to be in a drought again, aren't they? We're hearing that on the news. We're going to face another drought, so your water bill is going to go up again. But a spiritual drought is horrible. A spiritual drought is when we are so dry in our soul that we are totally unaffected by who God is and what God has done. I say unaffected, I mean it doesn't touch our hearts at all. And that's what was happening in, in this case that Hosea is speaking about. And he says, that what, here's what you need to know. You need to know the Lord. The knowledge of the Lord. When you go through the Bible and it talks about the knowledge of the Lord, it emphasizes four things. First, you've got to know the facts about God. Romans eleven thirty three. 33, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Unsearchable means not a trace. You guys that go hunting, you ever go hunting and you, never, you don't even find a trace? of what you're hunting, that's what it means. You can't even find a trace of it because he's so far beyond us. When we think about God as he's revealed himself to us, it's so amazing. You know, for example, the Bible says that God uses suffering in the life of the believer in exactly the opposite way that Satan tells you that he uses it. Satan wants to tell you that you are suffering because God is sick and tired of you and your life. And so he's punishing you. God says suffering is a part of me developing you as my child. He uses suffering in our life. He tears us so that we will turn to him. The most common word in the Old Testament in the Hebrew is, is a little word shuv, and it means to turn. And it's over a thousand times it's used in the Old Testament. And what it's talking about is turning, repenting, because we're going in one direction and we need to turn and go the opposite direction. We need to go back to the Father. We need to get back to God. And we see this repeated over and over and over again in the lives of God's people in the Old Testament. That they move away from God. They lose their knowledge of God. And so, first of all, the knowledge of the Lord consists of what he's revealed about himself in the Word of God. Do you know his attributes? Do you know what, how he's characterized in the Bible, that he's the God of love and holiness and goodness and truth and, and omniscience and omnipotence? He's almighty God. Because sometimes what, what happens in our trials, it reveals to us that we have a very shallow understanding of who God is. Because we start, we start assuming God is like us. If I was doing what God was doing, if I was doing to my children what God was doing to me, I think, what would be my motivation? I would be really angry. I'd be ready to... One guy told me one time that uh, when your child rebels, you should disown them. That's satanic. <laughs> That's a satanic wisdom. When your kids are rebellious, disown them. That's not what God does. He hasn't disowned you, has he? And you've been rebellious. 
And yet, he does not, he continues to love you. And so we need to know the truth about God, what he's revealed about himself. The second thing is the knowledge of the Lord is a heart understanding. A heart understanding of those facts. Like Matthew 22 says, we should love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and strength. In other words, it should capture my heart who this God really is. I should actually be happy about who God is as I discover who he is in his word. We used to, when I grew up in a church where they always talked about getting happy, what they meant by that was when you're worshiping God and all of a sudden he just fills your heart with pure joy and you can hardly control it. I don't think that's bad. In fact, I think what's worse is people getting so bored and so dull in the way that they relate to God that they should lie down and take a nap. Maybe God will give you a dream. So it has to be a hard understanding. It has to touch our affections. The third thing is the knowledge of the Lord is, is, is an experience of God. Acts 17, 28 says, For in him we live and move and exist. We should experience our life in Christ, in God. That I understand that I am in the very, living in the very presence of God. That's where, God, that's where Christ has brought me. He's brought me, he reconciled me, which means that he removed the distance between me and God. And he's brought me very close to God. And I'm living in his presence. And that's why Luke says in, in Acts 17, for in him we live and move and exist. And then finally, knowledge of the Lord is blessing from God. That's James 1.17. Every good thing and every perfect giving is from, the, from above, coming down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no turning or shadow. Knowledge of the Lord is a blessing. In fact, that's, that's why trials are a blessing from the Lord, because we come to know God better. I read this article last week that really hit home. It was about what small churches know that large churches don't know. And what he was talking about is we know we're weak. We know we actually need God. We know we are desperately in need of God's help and God's provision. And so we can appeal to him because we know who he is. And we live our life in fellowship with him. That's what we've been called to do. And when Isaiah says, let us press on to know the Lord, he's talking about this kind of knowledge of God. We need to press in. We need to move forward. We need to be revived. Because sometimes we really do get to living as though we don't have a clue about who God is. I sometimes am amazed talking to someone and, and what they're saying reveals the fact that they don't have a clue who God is, what kind of a person he is, what kind of a being he is. You do realize you can never, ever in your whole life be outside of his presence. It's like um, you can never sin except in the face of God. Charles Spurgeon used to emphasize it all the time to his congregation. Every sin you ever commit is in the face of God. You are in his very presence. But what happens to us, we begin to forget about who God is and how glorious he is. Then in one sense, I ought to be ready to fall on my face before him because he's glorious. And when he opens my eyes to his glory, that's exactly what it feels like I ought to do. So we need to press on. Like Hosea says, we need to be 
This needs to be something that we really put our shoulder in and we say, yes, I'm going to, I'm going to come to know my father the way I ought to know him. In Hosea 4.1, he says, Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. That's quite an indictment. These are the people of God. And he says there's no knowledge of God in the land. And because of that, there's no faithfulness or kindness. And then in Habakkuk chapter 2, it says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord and the waters like the waters cover the sea. That's what we have to look forward to. That's what the kingdom of God is going to be like in the future. We're going to be living in the presence of the knowledge of God. We're never going to be far from him. Well, in this, in this particular case, the younger son leaves. He takes his one-third of the, of the estate, and he leaves, and then he's impoverished. Verses 11 and 12, the older son, he gets his double portion. That's what Deuteronomy teaches, is that the oldest son gets a double portion of the inheritance. So he gets two-thirds. The younger younger son has only a third. Usually that wouldn't happen until the father died, but this younger son wanted his, and I want it, and I want it now. And so the father gave him his inheritance, and he squandered it but he comes home and he's received as a son instead of a slave now remember what he wanted to do he just wanted the father to receive him as a slave because he knew that the father's slaves lived better than he did on his own and he just wanted the father to receive him as a slave but the father doesn't receive him as a slave he receives him as a son and he brings these garments and notice these three things his robe, he gave him a robe, which was the guest of honor, wore the robe, which, which manifests and illustrates his acceptance with the father. And then secondly, he gave him a ring to put on his finger, which was like, the signet ring was like a credit card. You know, like when you're, don't you do that when your kids turn 18, you give them your credit card? Everybody but Pam does that. That's what would happen in the, uh, when, a, when a son was adopted, we ought to see it means placed before the community as an adult son. And he would be given a ring which identified him as having authority because he is the heir. And then, and then the sandals. All slaves were barefoot. So if you had sandals, if you wore sandals, it means you weren't a slave. And so the father gives him sandals which speaks of his freedom. He's come home and his father's not going to treat him as a slave, but as a son. What an incredible illustration of salvation, isn't it? That when we come to the father, he doesn't make us, he doesn't make us a slave in the sense that he's talking about here. We become the servant of God, but that's a privilege. That's a high, high position. We are given freedom in the family. We are made sons of God. In fact, this is kind of puzzling to some people, but it calls both women and men in the family of God as sons. And that's because it refers to the fact that you're an heir. You're an heir of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And this calf that had been fattened was to be only used for a special occasions. This is a great celebration. The father is happy because the son has come home. The older son is very unhappy. Now, I'm sure you've heard this taught before, and you know that the older son is a picture of Israel. Uh, 
It's a picture of the Pharisees and the scribes. They're angry because Jesus receives sinners and he eats with them. Now this had a special sense to it because table fellowship was something that no Pharisee would ever have with a Gentile, with a sinner. They would never sit down at a table and eat with him. They would actually recline at a table. They'd never recline at a table and eat with us, what they called sinners, which were the Gentiles. They weren't God's people. They weren't under the law. And Jesus, the Pharisees say, look at him. He's receiving sinners. He would speak to Gentiles and he would speak to outcasts. I love this because you know what this tells me? That God gets the gospel out even if it's his enemies that are giving it. Because this is the gospel. Look at this man. He receives sinners and he eats with them. In this magazine, Voice of the Martyrs, if you don't get it, you should get it because it's free. Go on persecution.com and you can order this free little magazine that comes once a month. Incredible stories. And this month it's about believers in North Korea. It tells us one story, and I was fascinated with this because it tells more than that, but one of the stories that it tells, unlikely evangelist. It was what it was about. It was about a woman who who illegally left North Korea and went to China because her children were starving and she had to get food for her children. And she got caught coming back in the country and they arrested her and put her into prison. And they persecuted her and beat her. And her interrogator kept saying to her words like God and Christianity and the Bible. And she didn't know what any of those things were. She didn't know what she was talking about. The woman was accusing her of being a Christian, and she didn't know what a Christian was. She didn't know what the Bible was. So after they had become convinced that she really just went to China because she needed food and she had come back, they put her in a, they took her out of that camp and they put her in a less severe camp. She still had to work. She still had to labor. But when she got there, she asked one of the other inmates, what's, what's the Bible? And this other inmate said, shh, there is such a book, but don't ever speak of it because you'll be beaten. Well, a little later, she finally came to understand the gospel and she believed in Christ. And that's her story. She first got the gospel preached to her by her inquisitor who just kept saying, Bible, church, Christianity. And she was trying to get her to give some kind of response so that she could see if she was a Christian. You see, it's illegal to be a Christian in North Korea. It's not legal. How has your persecution been this past week? What's it been like? And you notice what happens. is the older brother, like the, the scribes and Pharisees, he acted just like they did. He was absent. He absented himself. And the father had to come out and try to get him in. And he was offended. He was offended just like the Pharisees were because the father treated him with love and acceptance. And contrasting these two brothers, the older and the younger, it's amazing the contrast. You see, we don't know what kind of, we don't know what kind of impact this had on the younger son. It doesn't tell us. But think about us. We've been brought into the family of God. He's put a robe on us, and since he has robed us in Christ, that's, what it, that's the way it's described. We are in Christ, and we are clothed in him. We have a perfect standing in the family of God. 
He's even given us shoes, gospel shoes. I was thinking, I was talking to, the last couple of weeks I've had a couple of guys tell me about their frustration over the fact they couldn't get a, uh, a permit for a concealed weapon. And so I told them, I said, hey, I know how you can get a concealed weapon, you don't have to get a permit. Just get you a Bible that's small enough to put in your pocket, and then you can just pull it out, and you can start using the ammunition of the gospel right here. And you can have a read it for themselves. Christ died for our sins, and he was buried and rose again. That's the most powerful weapon there is, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You read these stories, and in, in, uh, you, you remember the Johnsons. Amy Johnson, her father was the president of uh, Voice, uh, Voice of the Modern. I think he's retired now. But this is a, there's a movie coming out on, in March. They're going to show it one night at the theaters, uh, Persecuted for Christ. It's uh, the story of Wormbrandt. And uh, he was persecuted for Christ. He was beaten mercilessly. We had him at our church some years ago. He died in 2002, but not this church, but a church I used to be in. And we had him, and he had to sit on the stage, and he would take off his shoes because his, sho- his feet had been so damaged that he was in constant pain because that's one of the things they would do to him is beat his feet. They would take his shoes off and beat him on the bottom of his feet. But he never recanted. That was in Romania, I believe. He suffered for Christ. But you know, what God does is he can even use our tormentors to bring the gospel to us. And if he tears you, he will heal you. He'll tear you so that you will turn to him. So that you will return to him. So that you'll come to know him the way he wants you to know him. As a father. I heard somebody say not too long ago that God's favorite name is Father. That's based on the fact that Jesus said when you pray, pray like this, our Father in heaven. That's what Christ has done for us. He's reconciled us to God. And you know what? If you don't open your mouth and share the gospel, God is going to speak through somebody else. How did you hear the gospel? Think about that for a minute. How did you hear the gospel? Who shared the gospel with you? Isn't it something how God is able to get the gospel to us? But I want to be an instrument in his hands, don't you? I want him to use me to take the gospel to people. I want to speak the gospel even if I have to use a concealed weapon. I want to take the gospel to people because I know that it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that God uses to bring people into the family and to clothe them in the robe of Christ's righteousness and to put the gospel shoes on their feet. <laughs> so don't wait for, don't wait for the tormentors to, to preach the gospel. If you remain silent, the rocks will cry out. But don't remain silent. You're ambassadors of Christ. And he wants you. And you know, if you're here today and you've never been found, Jesus is still seeking and finding and saving the lost. He hasn't stopped. And if you want to know him, you can know him today by simply turning to him. And we'd be glad to talk to you and to help you to see the truth of this gospel that has been given to us. 
He wants you to know him. He wants you to come. The, the First Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 says, God desires all men to be saved. The word men there, anthropos, includes women. It includes every person. Because, you know, they didn't have this. There was no gender confusion back when God wrote the Bible. So when he says anthropos, he's talking about human beings. And so if you want Christ, if you want the Father, if you want to have a relationship, you want to be a child of God, Jesus Christ has come to seek and save you. And he would be delighted for you to come to know the Father. In fact, that's what we, we tend to do is throw parties when people come to Christ. It's the most glorious thing. So will you pray with me? Our Father, we bow our heads and our hearts. We thank you for giving us the knowledge of God. You've, you have blessed us so richly. You've brought us to the truth of the word of God, the truth of the gospel. You've given us this salvation that we can't even hardly describe. It's so glorious that Christ has come to live within us. And he has given us his righteousness and his life. And so, Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts. Help us return to the knowledge of the Lord. Help us, Father, to be people who know who you are and live in light of that truth and that reality, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To respond to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.